Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Blind, But Now I See. All right, so to start the message off today, I want everybody to think of a person that you know who's far away from God. Think of a person that is so mean, so arrogant, right? So hard-hearted, so spiritually blind that you would never think in a million years that that person would ever come to the Lord. When you think about this person right now in your mind, you're thinking, man, there's no way that guy or that gal could ever become a Christian. Now, if you have that person in your mind, I have some very good news for you. And that is the first point. No matter how blind a person may be, if they turn to Christ, they can receive spiritual sight. Now, the reason I can say that confidently is because of the man that we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 9. The man that we're going to talk about today was very far from God. This guy was so mean, so arrogant, so hard-hearted, and so spiritually blind. In the first century, if you lived in Israel, you would think if you're a Christian, there's no way this guy would ever in a million years come to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, Saul of Tarsus had a grace encounter with Jesus Christ, and his life was changed forever. Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, once was blind, but when he met Jesus Christ, after he met the Lord, he could see. And so the passage that I have the privilege of teaching today is how Saul met Christ. I am a preacher. I am a teacher. I am an expositor of God's word. And I know that every word from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by God. But there's certain classic passages in the scripture that I get excited about when I get to teach these passages. And this is one of them right here. Saul meets Jesus Christ. It's such an important story that it can be found three times in the book of Acts. We find it here in Acts chapter nine. We find it a little later in Acts chapter 22. And then once again, the same story in Acts chapter 26. And so we're in chapter nine, verse one, and you need to know before we start going through it that right now, Saul of Tarsus is in his BC days, his before Christ days. He's angry, he's madder than a wet hornet, and he's going after followers of something called the way. All right, and so with all that in mind, look at verse one. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and, what's the next word? Murder. <laughs> Against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to, look at this, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so by way of quick review, Saul was a very religious man and he was a very respected man. He was very religious because he was mentored by the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. This guy was trained as a Hebrew scholar. He knew the Jewish scriptures like the back of his hand. He was very religious. He was also very respected. This guy worked his way up, Saul of Tarsus, and he became a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he may have even served on the Sanhedrin. 
But one day, this very religious, very respected man became a raging animal. And it all started back in chapter 7. We saw this about three weeks ago. And so in Acts chapter 7, when the follower of the way, the follower of Jesus, Stephen... When he stood before the Sanhedrin, he made a defense for the Christian faith. When he had the audacity to to claim that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, something snapped in the head of Saul of Tarsus. Saul thought, no. How dare Stephen say that this false teacher from the hills of Galilee is our Messiah? How dare he say that this false teacher has risen from the dead? It's all lies. It's all heresy. And if we allow these heresies to continue, they're going to threaten our temple. They're going to threaten our law. And they're going to threaten our Jewish way of life. And so the sooner this cult, the sooner this thing called the way is eradicated, the better. So by the way, um, the phrase the way, um, most scholars believe that it comes from John 14, 6. Do you guys remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? If that's a verse, um, of, of all the verses in the Bible, that's one of them you gotta memorize, okay? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to this. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. And so followers of the way were followers of Jesus. And Saul of Tarsus hated followers of the way, and so he persecuted them. We learned a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, this guy actually went, barged into homes, and he he, he arrested, violently arrested men and women, drug them to prison. His persecution was so intense, people were like, Saul of Tarsus is coming, we gotta get out of here. And so believers in Jerusalem began to scatter all over the Mediterranean basin, and apparently many of them made it all the way up to Damascus and started sharing the gospel up there. And so we'll show you the map to kind of get your geographical bearings, but if you see the tip of the Dead Sea at the bottom center of your screen. Please say amen. Okay, and so just go over to the left a little bit. Go west a little bit, and you'll see uh, the city, right around the city of Jerusalem. And so today, if you were to get in a car and you were to drive from Jerusalem to Damascus, it'd take you about four hours. By the way, I recommend it's great to drive in Israel. I do not recommend that you drive in Syria in the current uh, crisis going on today. But nonetheless, if you were to drive from Jerusalem to, to Damascus, it'd take you about four hours in a car. But back then in Acts chapter nine, it was about a six day hike. And so many believers in Jerusalem, listen to this, Jewish believers, Jewish believers, we have not gotten to Acts 10 yet. In Acts chapter 10, the door is open to the Gentiles to be saved with Cornelius and his household. And we know in Acts chapter eight, the Samaritans got saved. We do know that a Gentile got saved, an Ethiopian eunuch, but he was a, listen to this, a Jewish proselyte already. And so the Gentiles in Acts 10, that's when the door is open to the Gentiles. And so right now, predominantly, the church is made of Jewish believers in Jesus. 
they scatter from Jerusalem. Many of them go to Damascus. And listen to this. You, can, guys, you guys can answer it out loud. If you're a Jewish believer and you want to share your faith, where are you going to go share your faith on Saturday if you're a Jewish believer? You tell me. In the synagogues. And that's what these people did. They went into the synagogues of 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 Damascus and began to share that Jesus, proving from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul of Tarsus in, in Jerusalem finds out and he has a conniption fit. His head explodes. He freaks out. It's said in verse one, we just read it, he begins to breathe out threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. He's thinking followers of the way have made it up to Damascus and they have the audacity to share Jesus in our synagogues. I'm going to kill them. Now, some people think I'm overreacting, but really I'm underreacting. This guy wanted to murder Christians. So what did he do? He had to make it legal. So he went to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he got letters. And he took those letters, got that authority to arrest Christians, and by the way, they're not really officially called Christians until Antioch later in Acts, but he, he gets letters, authority from Caiaphas the high priest to arrest the followers of Jesus in Damascus. And what does he do? He gets ready to take the six day hike from Jerusalem to Damascus because he's gonna go hunt down Christians and he's gonna bring them back to, to Jerusalem for trial. So he's packing his bag, I don't know, on his horse or donkey or camel, whatever it is. He gets some armed guards from Jerusalem because he's got to have some muscle in order to kick down the doors in Damascus and bind those people. And he takes off and he begins to head northeast. And it's a long trip. Again, six days by walking, I don't know, maybe three days if he's on a horse or four days on a camel, I don't know. But he's making the long trip. And I'm just, I'm just wondering... And by the way, I encourage you to do this as you're having your devotions. Just don't read through a chapter and just, you know, go to work, but, but spend some time. You remember the word in Psalms, sila? The word sila means think about it. So we're thinking about the scriptures right now, this morning, and think about what Paul was thinking about as he begins to make this long trip from Jerusalem to Damascus. I'm wondering if he's thinking about Stephen. See, I think that Stephen had a profound impact on Saul of Tarsus's life. I'm thinking that Saul of Tarsus used to go head to head in debates with Stephen and Stephen ate his lunch. I know that led to Stephen having to stand before the Sanhedrin to give a defense of the faith. And I know that Saul of Tarsus was there and he heard that defense of the Christian faith. And do you guys remember what Stephen said right before they killed him? And I'm quoting now from Acts chapter seven, verse 56. Stephen said... Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the Sanhedrin was like, no, blasphemy. And they rush him and pull him to the outside the city and they stone him to death. And the young men who threw the rocks laid down their coats at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. And I'm just wondering if Saul's thinking about this stuff you see, at the time, Saul dismissed as foolish talk any thought of Stephen having a heavenly vision of the Son of Man. But you know what's ironic? Before we get to verse 3, you know what's ironic? Saul's about to have a heavenly vision of his own. Check it out. Look at verse 3. He says, now as he went on his way, 
he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from where? Heaven. Shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And Saul says, oh no, right? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I think, man, wow, this is amazing. Now in, in chapter 22, we know that this encounter happened right around high noon, right in the middle of the day. In chapter 26, we know that when this heavenly light began to shine, it was brighter than the noonday sun. Ladies and gentlemen, that's bright. Have you ever looked right directly into the sun? Don't, it'll ruin your eyesight, okay? But this heavenly light was brighter than the noonday sun and it began to flash all around Saul and his men and it said they all hit the deck. And then they, he, Saul, heard the voice. They heard a noise, a voice, um, but, but he hears distinctly these words. Saul, everybody look at me. This is what I like to think. Jesus has his foot in the back of Saul's neck. <laughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And so who was Saul? Think through this. Who was Saul persecuting? They're called what? Christians, believers. And yet, who did Jesus say he was persecuting? Yeah. Why are you persecuting me? And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, when someone persecutes a Christian, they persecute Christ. So be careful. Be careful how you treat people, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says that when a person turns to Christ in faith, they become one with Christ. I can't explain it, it's a mystery, it's the omnipotence of God. But when someone experiences a genuine conversion, they really come to Christ, here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit takes the spirit of that person, that new convert, and he baptizes it, immerses it, baptizo. He immerses that person's spirit with all the other spirits of Christ's followers all around the world, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. He baptizes, he immerses that person in the universal body of Christ. And not only does that person become one with all true Christians around the world, but that person becomes one with the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 30 says that when a person turns to Christ in faith, they become one with the Lord. That Christ is the head, and listen to this, and we are the body of Christ. You've heard this before, right? Therefore, when Saul was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Christ. When he slandered Christians, he was slandering Christ. When he kicked down doors and drug men and women who were Christians out to prison, he was doing that, he was attacking Christ. The same is true today. When someone attacks a Christian, they're, I'm sorry, attack, uh, yes, attacking a Christian, they're attacking Christ. When someone slanders a Christian, they're slandering Christ. When someone defrauds a Christian, they're defrauding 
Christ. So let's all be very careful how we treat fellow Christians. And let's all be careful how we treat the church because the church is the body of Christ and Christians are individual members of it. Does this make sense, yes or no? Yes. Be careful. If we all just lived by what Jesus said in John 13, 34, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Can you imagine if everybody lived just by that verse? We never have to worry about persecuting Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And Saul must have thought, what? <laughs> what in the world is going on here? Jesus really is alive? He really is risen? He really is the son of God. He really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. How blind have I been? Why couldn't I listen? Why couldn't I humble my heart before? Why does it take this for me to come to Christ? And so we see now in verse six that Jesus isn't done talking to Paul or Saul. It says in verse six that Jesus says to him, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, you guys realize that the Lord could have killed Saul right here and sent his soul to hell. Do you realize that? And would Saul have deserved it? Would Saul have deserved it? Yes. Because yes. the wages of sin is death. But do you see God's mercy and his grace in the text? He says, rise in verse six and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. <coughs> and the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul, verse eight, rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, blinded by the light. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, if they were riding on horses or camels or donkeys, we don't know. And by the way, all three stories in Acts 9, 22 and 26 mention no animals at all. We see the movies, he's on a horse, whatever, um, but not necessarily so. But if they were riding on horses, can you picture Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of the Pharisees, riding on his high horse, going into Damascus to destroy more innocent families, and at one moment, he's on his high horse, and the next moment, he's on the ground, in the dirt, groveling, trembling, blinded by the light. He goes from this big shot to like a little ch child saying, I can't see, I can't see, and they gotta lead him by the hand into Damascus. Do you guys see this? That the Lord can humble any man, no matter how haughty or proud that person thinks he is, or great he thinks he is. The Lord is able to humble even the proudest of men. The Lord is able to humble even the proudest of women. You see, so many people in our world, they think they're all that. And really, the Lord says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And sometimes God has to humble us in order to get our attention. I spoke to someone just in the last service who came up and told me God had to humble me and he sh shared with me what happened in his life to wake me up so that I could see. 
And so they led Saul to Damascus um, into a house of a man named Judas. And in that house, he sat for three days. He didn't eat or drink anything. So can you see him? He's sitting in a room. He's sitting in the dark, not because it's dark in the room necessarily, but because he's blind. He's got these scales somehow on his eyes, blinded by the light from heaven, brighter than the noonday sun. He's sitting in the room in the dark for three days. They come in, Saul eats something. I don't want anything to eat. Saul drinks something. I don't want anything to drink. Well, what was he doing for three days? He was praying. He was fasting. And he was processing. What in the world just happened to me? Now, I think after he calmed down physically, that he began to, because he has such a keen intellect and such a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, I believe that the light bulb starts coming on, passages start coming on, um, coming to light in his mind, and he starts to see Jesus in what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And he's thinking, man, Jesus is in Psalm 22. Jesus is in Isaiah 53. Jesus is in Daniel chapter nine and a hundred other passages. And all this stuff is now being illuminated in his mind. Look at verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias begins to shake a little bit. Named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, when the Lord told Ananias to go look for Saul, we're gonna see in a moment that Ananias is very reluctant. He's probably thinking something like this. Okay, the Lord wants me to go look for Saul. He came here to look for me and other Christians to kill us, you know? The Lord says that he's praying. It's true. He has been Praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, on people like us. You know, what's going on? Why in the world does the Lord want me to do this? And he's so afraid. But look at verse 13. And Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, there, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's trying to talk God out of what God told him to do. Can anybody relate? <laughs> but the Lord said to him, go. Do you notice God never changes his mind? Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I'll show him... <laughs> Boy, does he ever wait for the rest of the book of Acts. I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so at first, Ananias questions the Lord. He says, look again in verse 13, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priest to bind us, right? In other words, Ananias may have well have said to the Lord, Lord, have you thought this through? <laughs> this is a bad dude. He came here to arrest us and eventually kill us. And so Ananias really thinks 
that he has to inform the Lord about the situation. He really thinks he's got to give God counsel about the gravity of the situation. It's as if the, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign God needed some advice from little Ananias, right? Now, how ridiculous is that? How irrational is that? But ladies and gentlemen, this is what fear did to Ananias, and this is what fear will do to you and I as well. God comes to us, he tells us to do something, and we become afraid, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, we're being irrational, and we're trying to talk God out of whatever he's called us to do. That leads you to your next point, if you're taking notes. When the Lord tells us to do something daunting, we should, what's the next word? Obey and never give in to fear. When God tells you, when God tells me to do something daunting, difficult, we gotta obey the Lord. We gotta step out in faith and we can never give in to our fear. How are you gonna respond if the Lord says to you, I want you to share your faith with your coworker during break today? Are you gonna allow fear to dominate in your heart where you're trying to, well, I don't think that was really the Lord, trying to talk him out, talk God out of what he just told you to do? Or are you gonna step out in faith and just do it? Go for it. How will you respond if the Lord said, I want you to accept that new job, even though that new job pays less? How are you gonna respond if the Lord says, I want you to move away to another city? I want you to go back to school and get whatever degree. And you're thinking, I'm 35 years old, I'm 40 years old, that can't be the Lord. But the Lord says it. Are you gonna try to talk God out of it or are you gonna obey? What if the Lord says, I want you to trust me with the tithe? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully, I just want you to honor me with this principle and put me first in your finances. Are you gonna try to talk them out of it? I can't afford it, I got, I got all these bills, there's no way. Or are you just gonna step out in faith? How are you gonna respond if God says to you, I want you to become a missionary? By the way, we're privileged and honored in this church to have Mike and Reve Lawrence, who served on the mission field for 12 and a half years and now serving here in this church. They took that step of faith. They obeyed the Lord, they stepped out. But what if God called you to do something like that? What if God says, be a pastor? What if God says, foster a child? So many kids that need homes. And here we are, Calvary Port St. Lucie, a growing, vibrant church on the Treasure Coast filled with families. And we could actually provide a lot of homes for a lot of these kids. And what if the Lord is speaking to you right now? Will you try to talk him out of it? What if the Lord says, build a school across the street? I gotta tell you, I just be vulnerable for a minute. When I got the information that um, it was gonna be more money than we thought, I laid in bed, I think for two hours, couldn't sleep, middle of the night, just like, 
right? Fear was creeping in. But I thank God that in this whole process, the Lord has taught me, Mike, you gotta have a heart like Caleb and you gotta have a heart like Joshua. Don't have a heart like the 10 spies who said, there's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. Let's go back to Egypt. Don't do that. Be like Caleb, be like Joshua. I've told you to go in the land. It's not gonna be easy. Just go, step out, and I'll show up. I'll do it. But what if God calls you to do something daunting? If he does, just obey. Never give in to fear. You gotta take that step. And listen, it's not until you take the step of obedience that he shows up. But if you will take that step of faith and say, okay, Lord, I'm not gonna listen to my fear. I'm gonna take the step of faith. Then that's when all of a sudden God shows up and he gives you the power and the passion and the prudence and the provision to, to prosper in his will, to actually do this successfully. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. Well, what I am saying is that Philippians 4.13 is true. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so just take the step of faith, go for it. Kind of like when Mr. T met Rocky in the middle of the ring and he says, I'm gonna bust you up. Rocky says, go for it, right? Now I know that was from the eighties. I'm dating myself, I'm 52 years old, but you know, that's what I remember. And so listen to me, go for it. What God's called you to do, go for it. Not because you're so strong and you can beat the guy up, but because the Lord is so strong in you and he'll show up and he'll provide everything you need as you step out. I don't know why I'm just kind of staying here for a minute, but I think the Lord wants me to. Don't give in to nominal Christianity. Don't give in to casual Christianity. Don't let your Christianity be defined by just coming to church once or twice a month, sitting in a row, listen to a message, go home unchanged. I'm a Christian. Don't do that. Step up, step out for the Lord. Can you hear? He's confirming it. <laughs> or he's saying, move on, Mike. It's, you're going too long. All right. Look at verse 17. So Ananias, he finally says, all right, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna step out in faith. So he departed. And he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and he was baptized. And so all of a sudden, Saul regains his physical sight, but more importantly, you need to know that Saul regained or actually gained for the first time his spiritual sight. Why? Because Saul's so good? No, 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 no. Because Christ is so good. It's called grace. Now, some of you are new to the Bible, so I gotta define biblical grace for you. So here's biblical grace. Grace is undeserved favor, freely bestowed on those who are in Christ. That is a biblical definition of grace. And you gotta learn this. You gotta believe this in your heart of hearts. Grace is undeserved. That means none of us, none of us. I don't care how religious you think you are or how good you think you are or how well you think you, know, uh, you can keep God's commandments. Listen, 
all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Grace is undeserved favor, blessings from God freely. It's a free gift. Salvation's a free gift. You don't work for it. Undeserved favor freely bestowed on those who are in Christ. John Newton had a grace encounter, just like Saul of Tarsus, and his spiritual eyes were opened as well. He was born in London in 1725, and he grew up with a Christian mother. His mother loved him. She taught him the Bible. She took him to church. But the problem was John Newton's mom died when he was just six or seven years old. And so he, not long after that, because his dad sure wasn't walking with the Lord, he went the way of the world. And as a young man, he went to sea. And sadly, he became involved in the African slave trade. And so young John Newton got this reputation among other sailors as a hard drinker, a party animal, a wild guy. And uh, he mocked the faith of, that his mother once taught him. When he was 23 years old, he was in a ship, an English ship, heading back to Britain in the North Atlantic. And all of a sudden, this violent storm hit out of nowhere. He wakes up. He sees that the, the, the ship is being tossed and turned and his cabin's filling up with water. He jumps out of bed. And with his other crewmates, they desperately for hours, all night long, try to save this ship from sinking. In fact, one of their crewmates during this violent storm, they watched him just be washed out to sea, gone. So they kept working and working and working and they, they, they know this is inevitable. This ship is going down. And later he records in his journal, John Newton says, on that ship that night, I begged God for mercy. I cried out, Lord, have mercy upon us. And by the way, he got that from his mom. Moms, be faithful even if dad's not faithful. Moms, be faithful with your little kids. They'll never forget the faith of their mother. And so he cries out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the Lord had mercy. And the storm finally passed and the crew, the rest of the crew, John Newton was saved. Later in life, he said, I always look back on that day in the middle of that night when I cried out to the Lord for mercy that when that's when things started to change in my life. You see, that's when God began a work of grace in the heart of John Newton. But how many of you guys know that life change often is a process that takes some time, right? And it did in his life. So eventually, he left the slave trade. Eventually, he left his career as a sailor. And in later years, he came under so much conviction. He began to be so remorseful about how he used to live his life and about how he was involved in the African slave trade. And so later in his life, he referred to slavery as, quote, a cruel, destructive, oppressive, sinful commerce. And the guy who used to promote slavery and promote the slave trade, he became an Anglican pastor and he became an ardent abolitionist. One of the best things that he did is he influenced a young politician named William Wilberforce to spend his time in parliament opposing the slave trade. And so William Wilberforce did that. He brought John Newton to the stand and John Newton gave all these testimonies about the horrors of, 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 and the sin of, of slavery along with others. And year after year after year, many years, they fought against the slave trade in Britain quick commercial break. If you want to learn more about William Wilberforce, I recommend the movie. If you haven't seen it, Amazing Grace, but even better, I like books, 
Um, Eric Metaxas, and by the way, this guy writes some really good biographies. He wrote one on Luther. He wrote one on Bonhoeffer. He wrote one on Wilberforce. I read all three and I really enjoyed them. But Eric Metaxas has a great book on the life of William Wilberforce where John Newton plays a secondary role called Amazing Grace. Back to the message. Finally, after years of opposing the slave trade in March of 1807, Wilberforce and Newton's dream became a reality. And the Slave Trade Act was given royal assent by parliament. And the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire. By the way, you see what God can do through Christians, born again Christians, to change the evils in society. And so John Newton, that happened in March. The Slave Trade Act abolished slavery in the British Empire, March of 1807, nine months later, December, John Newton met his maker. He met the Lord Jesus Christ. He passed away. In his final year, when he was 82 years old, John Newton said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. (laughs) By the way, he wrote a pretty famous song too. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, John Newton knew I'm a great sinner, but he met a great savior, and he received spiritual sight. Saul of Tarsus, Acts 9, knew he was a great sinner, but he met a great savior and that savior gave him spiritual sight. And maybe you're here today. It's time to admit I'm a great sinner. And it's time to say, I'm ready to meet the great savior for salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I'm out of time. I'm just gonna read verses 19 through 22, give you one final point, And this is where we'll pick it up next week. And so he gets baptized, and in verse 19, Saul, taking food, was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and look at look what Saul does in verse 20. And immediately, he proclaimed who? Jesus. Can you imagine this guy, of all people, sharing Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he's the son of God? Verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, spiritual strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Christ, he was the Messiah. Saul had a genuine conversion. He didn't just say a little prayer, repeat a little prayer after a pastor and go away unchanged and live like the devil. He had a genuine conversion. And the reason we know he had a genuine conversion is because it bore fruit of a changed life. Look at some of the fruit. If you wanna read all the fruit, read the rest of the New Testament, but just in this passage, In verse 11, he prayed to the Lord. Verse 16, 
he would suffer for the Lord. Verse 17, he was filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, he was baptized. Notice that happened after he believed. Verse 19, he fellowshiped with believers. Verse 20, he shared his faith with others. Verse 22, he increased in spiritual strength. All this are not meritorious works in order to earn heaven. All of this is fruit. Evidenced in Paul's life because he had a grace encounter with the Lord. And so the question I leave you, leave you with this, this afternoon is this. Have you had a grace encounter with Jesus Christ? And is your conversion genuine to the point where you're bearing fruit? The Lord is bearing fruit through you in your life. In other words, do you pray to the Lord? Do you suffer every once in a while for the Lord? Are you filled or being filled with the Spirit? Have you been baptized since you believed in Christ? Do you fellowship with other believers? We have lots of groups in this church. We'd love for you to join one. Um, do you share your faith with others? And, 20, and then the last one, um, are you increasing in spiritual strength? If any man or woman be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amazing grace. And so here's how we're gonna end the service today. Right now, I'm gonna ask the elders and pastors to come forward, and I'm gonna ask the prayer partners to take their positions on either side of the platform. And I wanna share with you that if you're here today and you're not sure if you've had a grace encounter with Jesus, please don't go home just wondering, do I know the Lord, do I not know the Lord? If you have questions, we'll do our best, Pat, the pastors and elders, to answer questions. But if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, to receive the grace of Jesus Christ and become a follower of Jesus, after I close in prayer, just come forward. We've already had, um, I think, two or three people receive Jesus after the last service. Just come on up. We would love to talk to you. We don't bite. <laughs> And we would love to share with you, encourage you in your faith and give you a free Bible. Um, if you need prayer for anything, um, prayer partners are available on either side. They would love to pray for you confidentially about whatever's going on in your life. And if you're visiting with us, make sure you stop by the uh, Next Steps area in the foyer. Thanks so much for coming. We hope you join us next week. Please stand. And I think it would be very cool for us to just sing the first verse of Amazing Grace. Are you with me? All right, and I am not a song leader. <laughs> I'm a preacher. All right, so you guys are gonna have to do the work. But let's go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found was blind.